thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. continuing our preliminary study in the book of Genesis, and let's recap what we've seen so far and uh, try to understand where we're going. We know that we're going to go back and really study this, the first chapter from a scriptural standpoint, try to understand what the purpose of that chapter is. However, there are some roadblocks on our way that we need to clean up roadblocks that are not due to science, but rather due to the way science has been manipulated into saying things that science never intended on saying in the first place. And as I said to you before, if you are the kind of a Catholic who's already had had this personal encounter with the Lord in the different hidden and mysterious ways that God uses to talk to us, if you have already are on your journey of prayer, that you know the beauty of prayer and that you have come to um, know the Lord in the stillness and quiet of the night, then you won't really care much about Big Bang and the theory of relativity and quantum theory and biology and all of that. You don't need that for your personal salvation. But where you might need it is for salvation of others. Now you might say to me, but I am not a scientist. I don't have the qualification. I never learned that kind of math. What can I do? Well, there are two kinds of knowledge that we may take consolation in. First is the kind of knowledge that tells us how things work. That's sort of a scientific knowledge. And some of us may attain to that knowledge at different levels, and, and others won't. But there's another type of knowledge, which is the knowledge to know that there is actually knowledge. What do I mean by that? Sometimes it isn't necessary for us to know all the intricacies of the answer. It is just enough for us to know that there is an answer and to point somebody in that direction. So... I'll give you an example that is rather important. A, um, good, a good Catholic man I know has four daughters, and he ended up sending two of them to uh, San Diego Uni SDU, San Diego University, right? Is that what? USD. USD, that's it, I'm getting there. University of San Diego. Anybody going to University of San Diego here? 
Any of the youth going to sleep? Okay. Well, today, generally speaking, if you want your child to lose his or her Catholic faith, you send them to USD. <laughs> it's a very good way of making sure that they will come out of it atheist. All right? It's actually true of most Catholic, most, most higher education institutions today that call themselves Catholic. There are only, I know of only five that I know of which are really authentically Catholic. Of all the institutions that call themselves Catholic today. Um, Thomas Aquinas College, Christendom, Steubenville, Dallas University. I don't know where it stands today. Um, and um, I said four or five. Ave Maria, new college, right? And uh, John Paul the Great, which is starting here. You can count them on your two hands. I mean, yes, two hands. We've got two hands, ten fingers. Got it right, all right? We have a significant crisis which started in the 16th century, and we've seen it flowering today, whereby somehow the Catholic um, centers of knowledge thought that it would be appropriate in the name of open-mindedness to leave aside Catholic education and Catholic teaching and just open ourselves to what's out there. Uh, and that's the result you get when you send your kids to those colleges to be aware of that. So what this man did, actually, he sent his daughter to this university, USD, but he met with her every week. He had lunch with his daughter every week, and he would ask her, tell me what threatened your faith this week. And he was able to counteract and respond to all the challenges that his daughter was under. So any of you parents thinking that I'm going to send my kid to USD and uh, this is going to be a good university, uh, you need to think it twice. You have some work to do in the continuing education of your children in the faith. And part of what I am doing today is give you a little bit of that ammunition to let you know that we are not completely disarmed in face of the onslaught of those folks who teach whatever they teach. And most of the, what they teach may not necessarily be the truth, All right, from a scientific standpoint and from a philosophical, metaphysical, theological standpoint. We do have answers in the church. You need to be aware of that. And that's why I'm actually walking you very quickly, I should say, through these arguments. Last week, a couple of you pointed out something uh, important. I told you that using the special theory of relativity, we can correlate the time, the age of the universe, to the six days as viewed from Earth, because time, the measurement of time is relative based on the framework you're in. That's essentially Einstein's intuition, that the way you measure time is relative on the framework you're in based on velocity and gravity. Um, some of us find that counterintuitive, but if you really think that our weight is relative to the framework we're in, and we accept that, meaning that if you weigh about 160 pounds on Earth, if you were to go to the moon, you'd, you'd weigh 25 pounds. Your weight is relative to the framework you're in. We accept that. But for whatever reason, when it comes to time, we get very perplexed that the measurement of time can be different based on the framework we're in. 
But from a Catholic standpoint, it really tells us that the universe is interconnected. There is interconnectedness between space and time, between matter, energy, and light. They're not separate entities. They're really part of one fabric. And part of that, I told you that the calculation comes down to be, I said, 8 billion for the first day, then 4, then 2, 1, half, and 3 quarter. And some of you pointed out uh, something important, which is I don't know how to count. Because I told you the total was 13.7 billion, but in fact it's 15.7 billion. And where's the discrepancy coming from? Well, really, the discrepancy comes from that I was base, basing it on an older framework. Okay, the way you calculate this is um, by figuring out how the microwave background radiation, which is the signature of the Big Bang, has been stretched. Right, so this is the wavelength. It's a wave. And if you imagine holding a wave in your hand, and if the universe is actually expanding, then this wave is going to get stretched. That stretching is related to something we call the redshift, and you can use that to determine how fast the universe grew. And so based on those calculations, it so happened that it maps to 15.75 billion years. Well, today we know a little bit better, and it's actually 13.7. The mapping still works, but it's not as elegant. It isn't a pure exponential or inverse. All right? That's where the discrepancy comes from. The key thing for us is to realize that there is, that there is a very sound way of stating the following truth. The universe is 13.7 billion years old. That is true. And the universe is six days old. And that is also true. It depends on the framework you're using to calculate the age of the universe. That's it. What I will show you when we go through the study of the first chapter, verse by verse, is that the first part of that chapter is not earthbound. The perspective is not based on an earth, earthly perspective. It's really cosmic. And here's a really another interesting little fact that some of you may or may not know. When the ancients calculated the age of the universe or the age of this world, they always started with the birth of Adam. They omitted from their calendar the first six days. Those first six days were never considered to be earth days. And when we start studying the text itself, we'll see why what gave them that intuition to think that these first six days were not earth days? So, we as Catholics do not say that we have to choose between one of the two interpretations. One that says the young, young uh, universe, whatever, uh, the young uh, age, young earth theory, that the universe is actually 5,000 years, regardless of which framework you're looking from. I bet you I can find a planet somewhere out there where if I were to measure the age of the universe, I can come up with 5,000 years. It's just a different framework. But we don't have to stick to that framework as being the absolute framework. There's no such thing as an absolute framework for measuring time. Right? The laws of physics are absolute. They work exactly the same across all framework. So the theory of relativity is not saying things are relative as far as the laws are concerned. The universe has a very 
very structured and understandable way of functioning. Just that the values you obtain differ from framework to framework. That's the key. Nevertheless, I will admit that it is rather strange. It is counterintuitive. And the reason why it's counterintuitive is because to be able to measure those differences, you really have to go up to a fraction of the speed of light. So the speed of light is 186,000 miles a second. 186,000 miles a second. The fastest thing we have going right now, which is uh, Voyager 1, is flying at 35,000 uh, miles per hour. Right? That's the fastest thing we've got. And that thing is very, very slow compared to the speed of light. All right? We, therefore, do not experience that on an ongoing basis. But it does not mean that this is how the universe functions. There is a dissonance between what we experience and between the reality of the universe. But then again, as Catholics, that should not be news to you, should it now? Why? Because there's something you do every Sunday that has a far bigger dissonance than this. Isn't it? When the priest raised this host, what do we say? Who's this? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Body, blood, soul, divinity. It is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself under the form of bread and wine. Now the fact that we've got accustomed to it should not take away from the fact that it's really not intuitive to say that God is present on the altar. Do you see that? So you have a weekly experience you go through that is completely counterintuitive to anything your senses will tell you. So therefore, we should not be surprised that the author of the universe would have put laws in it that would also be counterintuitive. Why? Because that counterintuitiveness about the universe will help us understand how otherworldly God is, how altogether unapproachable God is, how different He is. After all, the universe is a sacrament, is a natural sacrament that points us to heaven. Yes? All right. Well, if you think that the theory of relativity is strange, buckle up. Because now we're going to talk about something far stranger. And the interesting thing is that there are people today in university who believe all the stuff I'm going to tell you, but who have a hard time believing that God exists. And you will see, you, once you hear me say everything I'm going to say to you, first you're going to think I'm, I'm pulling your leg, and I assure you I have no intention of doing such a thing. Secondly, you're going to wonder, how could somebody believe that sort of stuff and, that, and have difficulty believing God exists? And you will understand that more often than not, the reason why we resist belief in God has nothing to do with theology. Most of the time, as Bishop Sheen said, people do not want to believe, not because of theology, but because of morality. I, have, I had at my house at one point two men having a conversation. One was an a former Protestant who converted became a Catholic, and one was a Protestant. And the conversation first centered around the Petrine office, the office of St. Peter. You know, is, is, uh, 
How can we have a pope, etc., etc., other questions. And then very quickly, the conversation moved away from that into the business of contraception. Now, as you know, contraception is a mortal sin, period. There are no exceptions, there are no whatever. It's a mortal sin. Two people are contracepting, they go to hell. That's simple as that. It's a one-way ticket. Basically, they're holding in their hands a one-way ticket to hell. Right? And once we, once we study the book of Genesis, you will have no doubt anymore in your head why this is so. You will fully understand why it is such a grievous, grievous, serious, and ugly sin. Now, 70% apparently of Catholics contracept and have no problem with it. Um, good luck. That man, at the end, said, I will never be Catholic because of contraception. The issue he had was moral, not theological. So then you will understand why these people hold to those beliefs, because they understand that the Catholic Church isn't just about theology, it's about morality. How you live your life as a Catholic is what determines your belief. That's why Jesus said, not those who will say, Lord, Lord, will be saved. Right? You can't just talk the talk. You've got to walk the walk. Okay? And when you consider today that most Catholic families have two and a half kids, on average, all right, you would know that it isn't because they're unable to have more children. It is because they made a choice. And they will often say, I don't want the Pope in my bedroom. Okay, you don't want the Pope in the bedroom? It means you don't want Jesus in your bedroom. And you take Jesus out of your bedroom, guess who, get, who comes in? Because in the spiritual realm, there is no void. There's no such thing as emptiness when it comes to spirituality. You take the Holy Spirit out of your house, another kind of spirit will come in to fill the void. That's why we do the Bible study. That's why we learn our faith. So we can actually let others know about the truth of the faith and the joy there is in living it according to the teachings of the church. So, with all in mind, let's talk about a couple of boxes. I want you, for those of you who got your uh, notebooks, I want you to draw a small rectangular box with three openings. One on the left-hand side. So, so basically draw it on the, if you will, on the bottom left part of your page. And, and so if it is on the bottom left part of your page, have a left opening, a top opening, and a right opening. On the top opening, write hard, and on the right opening, write soft. Hard and soft. So this is a machine that tells us when we push a thing in it, whether that thing is hard or soft. If the thing is hard, it'll come out out of the hard opening, and if it is soft, it'll come out out of the soft opening. You with me so far? Anything incongruous, anything strange about this? Yes? Questions about this particular box? Very good. Now, diagonally across from it, so basically on the right top part of the page, not necessarily the top, but maybe the middle, put another box, and again, have this box have a left opening and a top and a right opening. All right? And on the top, write black, and on the right, write white. Black, white. So that's another measuring machine 
such that if I push a thing into it, it'll tell me if the thing is black or if it is white. It measures, it, it measures the color of the thing. Easy enough? Okay. So, we're going to plunge in the world of particles. We're going to go very, very small. Very, very small. We're going to look at effectively uh, very small particles, which I'm going to call the thing. It doesn't matter what the thing is, other than it's really, really small. That's the only thing we care to know about right now. And the thing can be hard or soft, and the thing can be white or black. So you have hard and white things, and hard and black things, and soft and white things, and soft and black things. All right? Four variety of things floating around. Now, it so happens that if I push a whole bunch of things through my hardness measuring box, it so happens that they, the outcome will be that half of them will be hard and half of them will be soft. Every single time. No matter what I do to those things, I shake them, I, I cook them, I flip them, I turn them. Every single time I get them to go through the box, the things will come to be half hard and half soft, without exception. The peculiar thing is that no matter how I rig my measuring box, I cannot move that half and half even by one yota. So let's say I had 100 things, they'll always come up 50-50. I can't get them to come up 51-49. It's always 50-50. And likewise, if I were to push the 100 things through my coloring color measuring box, I get 50 black and 50 white. Every single time. So, what we're going to do now is effectively measure whether a thing is black and is soft and black and soft and, and white or hard and black and hard and white. We want to measure two of its properties together. So here's what we're going to add to our little apparatus here. I'd like you to put two Two diagonals, diagonals. Um, one, put one diagonal at the left, no, at the right bottom part of your page, and one diagonal at the left top part of the page. Right? Diagonals like this. So you have the two boxes opposite each other, and now you have the diagonals opposite each other. Think of those diagonals as bouncing mirrors. All they do is that when you shoot that thing up, Right? So when the thing goes into the hardness box and it comes up as hard, it hits the mirror and it goes towards the color box. And likewise, if the thing comes out as soft, it hits the mirror and goes up towards the color box. So those two mirrors do nothing but redirect the thing to get into the color box. And we know for a fact that they do not change the hardness or the color of the thing. They have no effect on those things. They only act as a pipe to redirect the thing towards the second box. You're with me? Yeah? Good. So, we now have a bunch of things that we get to go through the hard box. Predictably, half of them come up hard and half of them come up soft. The hard ones bounce against the mirror and get into the color box. And predictably, half of those come out black and the other half come out white. And the other half that came out soft bounced against the other mirror, 
go into the color box and predictably half of them are black and half of them are white. So that by the end of this experiment, we have half hard, half soft, half black, half white, which is what we would expect. So far so good? Okay. Now it gets interesting. We're going to start with a hundred white things. So we know the color is white. All right? Before, we didn't know. We just said a hundred things, and we're shooting them across. This time around, it's a hundred white things. And we shoot the hundred white things through the hardness box. What do we get? Fifty soft and fifty hard. And now remember, I told you that the mirrors... Do not mess around with the things. They keep them the way they are. So, those soft white, so far, and soft and hard white, get into the color box. What you would think the expected outcome would be? All white, right? Well, that's not what happens. Half of them come out white, and the other half come out black. Welcome to quantum world. So, this has been experimentally verified. Now, let me repeat what we just said. I take, this time, 100 white things, and I push them to the hardness box. Predictably, half of them go soft, and half of them go hard, as expected. They bounce against those mirrors, which do not mess around with the thing. And they get into the color box, which only measures the color. It doesn't do anything else. And we would expect, since we know that they were white... For them to come out white. Nope. They come out half white, half black. Okay. Now, let's start to understand what's going on here. On the path from the hardness box, on the soft path, we're going to put a gate. It's a sliding gate. The purpose of this gate is that if we slide it, it blocks the thing from going anywhere. And likewise, we're going to put another sliding gate on the path from the hardness box to the color. And again, if I slide it, it prevents the thing from going to the color box. So far, so good? And it is readily verifiable that if I slide both gates and I shoot 100 white things through, guess what comes out of the color box? Nothing. The gates work as expected. So far, so good? Okay. Now, here's what we're going to do this time. We're going to shoot our 100 trusty white balls through the hardness box. And we're going to put a gate on the path from soft to color. Okay? Meaning that 50 of those are not going to make it to the box. Only the balls that went on the hard path will make it to the box. All right? We run the experiment. As expected, we get 50 things coming out of the color box. What is the color of those 50 things? They're all white. So we quickly take the gate out, rerun the experiment, and guess what comes out? Half black, half white. So let's think this through. So let's follow one of those things that turn black. We said that the mirrors do not perturb the thing. And we said that the measuring box, the measuring color box, doesn't perturb it either. 
Yet that particular white turned into a black. It came out black. Now, it could not have gone along the hard path to the colored box because there's no perturbation there. It could not have gone along the soft path to the colored box because there's no perturbation there. And experiment tells us that it doesn't split in half, going sort of half of it on the soft and half of it on the hard. So it could not have gone on both together. And clearly, it must have gone through one of those paths because it comes out of the box. But it's impossible because it comes out black. So it's not going on, on one of the paths. It's not going on both of them. But it must go on one of them. We have a problem. And the problem is, well, actually, before I tell you the problem, let me make it even more confusing. Let's assume now that what I'm trying to measure, so my system is actually a box. It's a box. And in the box, there's a cat. Okay? So all my systems are boxes with cats in them. And the first box, the first measuring box that I called hardness, is actually telling me if the box, sorry, box and box. I have a basket, and there is a kitty in the basket. All right? And the first measuring box is telling me whether the lid is open or closed. And the second measuring box is telling me if the cat is dead or alive. All right? So I have a whole bunch of baskets, and I'm running through my, my boxes. So they're, they're, they're zipping through on a conveyor belt. And I start now with a hundred... A hundred baskets, each containing a living kitten. Huh? And I run them through my system. Guess what I get at the other end? 50 dead and 50 alive. With measuring boxes that do nothing to the cat. Okay. Let's reflect on that. Let's, before we take it any further, let's understand what what the consequence of that sort of experiment or theory leads people to say or believe or teach. This is called, well, well. before I tell you that, let's understand what's going on. What is going on is that we can't, it seems that we can say whether the thing is hard or soft. We can also say whether the thing is white or black. But as soon as we try to say whether the thing is hard and white or hard and black or soft and white or soft and black, all bets are off. Meaning that we don't seem to be able to correlate two states, two, not two states, two qualities of the thing at the same time. This is called the uncertainty principle. If you try to tell me whether the thing is hard or soft, you can't tell me what the color is. If you try to tell me what the color is, you won't be able to tell me whether the thing is hard or soft. You can do one or the other, but not both. Not both. And that's called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Heisenberg is the scientist who's beyond this, who's behind, behind this. And it's uncertainty because, essentially, if I know whether something is hard or soft then I'm uncertain about its color. And if I know something is white or black, I'm uncertain about its hardness. And by the way, hardness or color don't matter. You can take any two qualities of the thing and you'll end up in the same conundrum. 
most famously, we speak of the position, location, and velocity, speed of a particle. If you have a very small particle, like an electron or a photon, and you're trying to determine the position, the location of that electron, you won't be able to determine its speed. If you determine its speed, you won't be able to determine its position. It's one or the other, but not two together. All right? Let's take that one step further. It gets really interesting. Let's go back to our thing going through the two boxes. Maybe the problem is not so much with the experiment as it is being processed. Maybe the problem is with the observer. We, as we observe this experiment. So let's do this now. We have now an observer who is actually looking at the two things that this experiment just described to you. And uh, if we were to ask this observer at the end of the experiment what the color of something is, knowing it's hardened. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, if we knew that something was hard or soft and we threw it through and we asked this observer what the color of that thing is, the observer won't be able to tell us. It could be 50-50. All right? But oddly enough, the mathematical equations allow us to ask the observer the following question. Do you know with certainty what the state of the color of the thing is? Don't tell me what the color is. Just tell me if you know with certainty what the color is. And oddly enough, the observer will say, yes, I do. As a matter of fact, I know with certainty what the color is. But we know from experiment that the color is uncertain. So effectively, the mathematical model that is being put forth allows the observer to deceive himself into thinking that he knows what the color is, whereas in fact, he can't possibly know what the color is. Now, what's the intuition behind this? Behind the mathematics, what's the reality? Here's the reality. And when I explain it to you this way, you'll understand why this is so difficult. Does it make sense to you that um, you have today a lending company who's going to lend you money, loan you money for, your, for buying a house? Right? And that same company has its own appraisers. Anybody sees any problem with that? You see the problem? Right? What do we call this? We call this collusion. Right? We have a problem here because how do we know that the appraisal is actually fair? What is the conclusion of all of this? The conclusion is that the value of your house is what? Uncertain. Remember that I told you we're talking about very small particles, extremely small particles. What are we measuring these particles with? Remember my box? What's it made up of? From the same stuff. It's made up of particles. We're using particles to measure particles. And guess what? When you put particles together, they influence each other. So the fundamental intuition that is at the very basic level of matter and energy, the tools we use to measure these things are made of the same things. 
Let me, let me give you an example. Suppose I had a particle flying through the system that I'm trying to measure the color of that particle. And I am measuring, I'm, I'm using another particle to measure the color of that particle. My measuring tool is just a particle. You could just as well flip things around and say that the flying particle is actually the measuring tool that is measuring the behavior of my particle that I'm using as a measure. Have I confused you? Does this make sense? Makes sense, doesn't it? So it is this interaction of matter at a very basic level that makes measurement nearly impossible. Other than in probabilistic terms. But exact measurement is built in such a way that it will always confuse us. Let me explain it to you differently. Let me say something about this whole business of uncertainty. The Heisenberg uncertainty theory of quantum uh, mechanics is really one school of thought about, about uh, particles. It effectively states that you can never know for certainty the position of a particle when you try to measure its speed. All that you can know is the probabilities of where this particle might be. So there's a field of probability where this particle might be, and that's all you can know. The consequence of this approach is that at the very fundamental level, the universe is non-deterministic. Non-deterministic. What does that mean? Deterministic is when you can infer where something will be from its current state. So, for instance, uh, there is a bowl of chocolate and there is a toddler four feet away from the bowl of chocolate. It is a deterministic principle that you will know where the toddler will be 15 seconds away. Okay? That's deterministic. Non-deterministic is when you really can't tell which way things are going to go. You don't know. So at the very fundamental level, we're saying that the universe is non-deterministic. We can only tell with probabilities where things are going to be, but we never can really tell with certainty where they're going to be. Now, you might think, who cares? I mean, after all, None of us is trading with particles. None of us is dealing with particles on a daily basis. And certainly, particles don't come up in most of our conversation. So why should we care? Well, you and I may not care, but your kids are going to care when they go to university. Because the theological implication from this is twofold. Number one, because it is non-deterministic, we can never know the true state of something. The state is there for velocity, position, mass, energy, everything that make up that thing. We can never know that. Therefore, there is no such thing as a certain knowledge of truth. Do you understand the, the, the leap that is being made? There is no such thing as a certain knowledge of truth. You can't know truth with certainty. Because at the very fundamental level, the universe is absolutely non-deterministic, and therefore, you're only left with guesses. I assure you, when you take kids and you throw them in physics class with a professor who has his weight and a topic and who presents them in a very confident tone, this model of the world... And when your kids don't have the backbone to hold onto, have not had a proper Catholic formation, I will assure you that in a very subtle way, 
that worm will penetrate and will turn them into atheists. Because they can see there a very powerful, structured, disciplined framework backed by mathematics and by experiments. And what do they have to compare it to? A bit of Catholic stuff that they learned here and there, boring mass, and folks who can't answer basic questions about the faith. Which of the two you think will hold? Especially when the pretty girls are on the other side. Which of the two you think will hold? You understand? That's what we have to be aware of. We're not here to learn quantum physics so that we become physicists. We're here to understand two things. Number one, the internal makeup of the theory and how it is being abused. Because it's not what quantum physics is saying, but that's how it's being abused, just as the theory of relativity is being abused into saying that everything is relative, therefore your truth is as good as mine, don't bother me. Which is not what the theory of relativity is saying in the first place. But secondly, this, what I just present to you very, very briefly, and I just... You know, just the tip of the iceberg, because if I had to explain it more, I would have to go into vector space, complex vector space, and Hermitian matrices, and a bunch of other things like that, which I'm sure 15 minutes later everybody's snoring, other than a couple of math geeks around here. But. So I'm not going to do that to you. But, but let me tell you that this is called the Copenhagen, Copenhagen from Copenhagen, the city, Copenhagen School of Quantum Physics, all right? Copenhagen School of Quantum Physics. And this is what has been historically taught in universities because it has that flair to it. Things fundamental and non-deterministic. We can never know things. There's no such thing as certain knowledge. And therefore, because of this, hey, morally speaking, we're free. You make your own morality because there's no such thing as a certain morality. Not only that, quantum physics... You will hear this. You will even hear it on CNN sometimes. Quantum physics allow for the creation of particles out of nothing. Effectively, what quantum physics state, the, not the physical reality, but the mathematical model, states that it is possible to have a particle and an antiparticle, matter and antimatter, spring out, out of nothing, and they will collide and go back into nothing. But... Some physicists will hypothesize it is also possible that sometimes when they spring out of nothing, the collision doesn't occur. And therefore, it is entirely possible to have a whole new universe come into existence. So you have one universe that has been created out of nothing. Then sometimes later, another universe is created out of this one in other dimensions, and that process repeats. And you end up with this tree of universes that goes on into infinity. What's the consequence? Well, this universe is not special now, is it? It just so happens to be a universe that harbors life, and there are an infinity of universes that may not, but it's just one of them. Who needs God? You think I'm making that stuff up? There are actually... PhD theses in physics written on the subject. There are books published, and you can get them on, in local stores that speak about this eloquently. Now, of course, what I failed to tell you is that this ever happened, then quantum physics 
actually the theory requires that the universe being created is supermassive, which means it's going to collapse back on itself and can grow. And besides, you wonder how could you apply quantum physics to something that existed before the universe came into being because quantum physics in the first place requires space and time to be here. But of course, they will not tell you these things. What they will tell you is that it is entirely possible for this to happen. Why? Because they are undermining the faith. Not your faith, the faith of the youth. That's what they are after. There is, however, another theory in quantum physics called Bohm's theory, B-O-H-M, Bohm, for the name of the scientist came up with it, Bohm's theory, which is equally right, which is equally correct in its fidelity to the experiments that are being run, that effectively tells you, in theory, that you can measure the location and the velocity of a particle. That everything is actually deterministic. The whole idea behind this theory, unlike the first one, well, what's the difference between the two? Let me summarize it to you this way. I told you earlier that in the in uh, Copenhagen School of Quantum Theory, there is this notion that you cannot measure the exact location of something if you know its speed. All that you know is the probability of where it's going to be. And it just so happens that this probability is distributed ar around something that looks like a wave. So the, the probability that you would find this particular particle at a particular location is distributed according to a wave. That wave is used in the standard, in, in, in the Copenhagen school of thought as a device. It's a mathematical device to measure where the probability is going to be. In Bohm's theory, that particular wave is actually a physical reality. It is this wave that pushes the particle around. And as a consequence, it is always possible to know where that particle is. Now, here's an interesting little fact that Einstein brought forth, because he never believed in uh, Copenhagen School of Theory. He said, God does not play with dice. The, the, the intent being is that you can't have this set of probability. Universe made up of these probabilities we cannot know. So he didn't like it. And the, 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 the argument he brought forth is called the locality argument. He said, suppose you have a system consisting of two particles. But these two particles are separated by such distances that, there's imp that it's impossible for anything to cross from one to the other. The distances are so big that even if you were to go at the speed of light, you will never make it from one to the other. Never. Einstein, yes. If you had such a system, and you're telling me that... Um, yeah, suppose I had such a system, and, and if... I were to measure the velocity of the first particle, okay, then what would happen is that by me measuring the velocity of this first particle, you're telling me that somehow it's going to impact the location of the other particle such that I could not measure its location. You understand what the problem is? I have these two particles separate by such a distance that nothing, no information can cross between them if you were to go at the speed of light. And if you tell me that as soon as I measure the velocity of that particle, I perturb the system such that I cannot tell where the position of, this, of the particles are, particularly the position of the other particle on the other side. So somehow, information crossed instantaneously, faster than the speed of light. And he said that cannot happen. Well, the problem is that uh, 
a scientist by the name of Bell in 1976 proved that, well, proved according to what we understand today, that Einstein was wrong. It actually does happen. And if you don't understand how it happens, you know, you just join the six billion other humans that don't understand how it happens either. But it happens. As a matter of fact, there is experiment going on right now, which is weird. Because literally, there's experiment going on right now, I mean, two years ago, where they successfully created a essentially two particle systems separated by distances. And by perturbing one of the particles, the other one was instantly perturbed. Now, you can understand the interest, say, of the military in something like this. Because that means that even if you were in, on Mars or on Jupiter or on the other side of the universe, I can instantly communicate with you. That is some real cool stuff. How does this work? We don't know. We've got no clue. But it, it works. It works. So, anyhow, Bohm's theory also proves that non-locality occurs, that you have these connections between particles that are at, that defies distances, but it doesn't require us to go through the process of saying that everything is non-deterministic. Everything is deterministic. Everything is deterministic. There's only one problem with Bohm's theory. Okay. The way this works is that if I were to go back to my things and my hardness and my, and my color boxes, the way this would work is that effectively the particle is sitting on, those, on this wave and the particle moves as the wave moves it. So think almost as, uh, of the particle as like a, uh, um, um, a piece of uh, very light rubber sitting on water and as the water moves, the, it moves the, 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 the rubber ball. And, um, and so when this wave enters my measuring box, if it so happens that the particle was located initially on the top part of the wave, it will just go through the top exit. And if it was located on the right side of the wave, it will just go through the right exit. So it will look like it's hard or soft. And effectively what is going on in the measuring box is that the wave is split into two, a hardness wave and a softness wave. But here's the interesting thing. If I were to flip my box around, such as soft is on top and hard is on the right, that physical constraint of my measuring device will change the quality of my particle. So that hardness is not an intrinsic property of the particle. It's actually contextual. It depends on the context in which the particle finds it. All right? What is the consequence of this? Remember I told you that the way we measure particles is by using other particles? So, the location of that particle, whether it's hard or soft, will also depend on all the particles that are part of my box. They interfere with the wave of that particular particle. And in order for me to say with absolute certainty where the particle is going to go, I will have to take into account the position of the, those particles, each one of them, in its own wave, which, of course, is going to be a fantastically different problem to solve. 
So for all practical purposes, Bohm's theory is no different than the standard Copenhagen theory in that I am not able to measure with certainty the position of that particle if I know its velocity. But there is an epistemological difference, a difference of significance, a metaphysical difference, is that the world of Bohm's is deterministic. There's no such thing as non-determinism. The particles behave deterministically. It's just that I cannot use matter to measure matter at that level. I have a limitation in my ability to measure. But the universe is deterministic. Whereas in the Copenhagen School of Quantum Theory, the universe is intrinsically non-deterministic. It has nothing to do with measurement and with physical limitation. The metaphysical consequences are very different. Yet it is the Copenhagen theory that is being taught, and it is the Copenhagen theory that has this uncertainty principle, and it's the Copenhagen theory that has these notions about creation of universes out of nothing, and it is the Copenhagen theory that is being pushed in universities because it is the Copenhagen theory that supports the most uh, secular position. You can't make the Bohm's theory be critical of religion as the Copenhagen theory is. Taken on face value, both of them essentially do the same thing, say the same thing, and the Bohm's theory in a sense is more is easier to cope with and easier to understand than the Copenhagen uncertainty principle. But for historical reasons and for the for cultural reasons, it just happened to be that this is the theory that was pushed. Okay. Hold on, I'll take questions in five minutes. All right. What is the upshot of all of this other than confusing you? A couple of things. Number one, when we say the universe is mysterious, we mean the universe is mysterious. Okay? There is something about it that we cannot completely fathom, and what quantum theory is telling us today is that even if we try to fully understand it, there is an intrinsic limitation of us creatures in our ability to comprehend the universe. So the notion that we will one day understand everything there is in the universe is preposterous. We cannot. There are fundamental limits to what we can understand and what we cannot understand. That is an important leverage you can use against those who argue against faith. Because they too have faith in the universe. After all, when we measure a pound of flour, none of us worry about quantum theory. We expect a pound of flour to measure to a pound of flour, and that's it. Why? Because we have faith that even though at the very smallest level, the universe is act... act, seems to act in a weird way, or we have a limitation to know how it acts. We really don't know how it behaves. Yet we have faith that as we start agglomerating things together, putting them together in very, very complex ways, having millions and trillions of these particles come together and work together, that somehow all of that works in a very predictable way. Why is it that things work predictably? Why is it that things continue stubbornly to obey mathematical laws in the universe? Why is it that they just don't fall apart or suddenly decide to obey other laws? So you could conceive of a universe that every day decides whether it's going to move forward or backward in time. 
So, for the next three days, you grow old. And the two days following that, you grow young. And the day after, you grow half old, half young. So you're back at zero. <laughs> next week, you grow 10 years old in one day. And the week after, you're in diapers. Why is it that the universe mis- doesn't misbehave? That is the most profound question that science brings to our attention. Why the laws? We don't invent laws. We discover them. Nature obeys laws. Why? This is the theological question. This is what Genesis is concerned with in the first chapter. And that's what we're going to get to once we hit that spot. Let me tell you what we're going to do next week. Next week, we're going to deal with evolution and creationism. We're going to hit biology. So far, we talked about cosmology, the standard theory of creation in the universe. Then we talked about the two underlying theories that help hold together the standard theory, theory of relativity. And today, we spoke a little bit about quantum theory, enough to give you a taste of how strange the world looks when you really go to the very, very small. And next week, we're going to start looking at the theory of evolution and the, 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 the idea of a special creation, right? We're going to ask questions such as, was man created literally as Scripture says, or was man the product of an evolutionary process? And again, we're going to look at how science apprehends this issue. We're going to look at it from a scientific perspective. And once we've covered that, Probably takes us a lecture or two, maybe three. I don't know. We'll see how fast we can go covering these issues. Once we've covered all that, we would basically have had an exposure to what science is saying today about cosmology and biology. And then with that in our back pocket, we'll go back and start looking at it theologically and understand the correspondence between the two, how they work together, how there is harmony, and most importantly how the unifying principle behind all of this is the liturgy, mass. That is what we're going to move towards as we study that first chapter, book of Genesis. And then after that, things will ease up a little bit. It won't be that abstract and that complex. We'll dive into something far more interesting, perhaps, for all of us, which is really marital relationship when we're going to look at Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, and then Adam and Eve after the fall, and what we can learn about the relationship between man and woman, and what we can learn about man, female and male, intrinsically. What is man? The anthropology, anthropological principle. And with that, we would have concluded that first segment on the book of Genesis, which is basically half of chapter 1. We'll go faster after that, but this is... A very heavy chapter. It is so loaded that it is really worth our time studying it patiently. And then we'll start progressing a little bit faster as we move through the rest of the book. Questions? We had a question in the back. Correct. The question is, isn't it possible that these theories uh, may be completely overturned by another theory? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, This is part of the nature of science, and scientists knows that, know that. Uh, CNN may not, but scientists do know that. Don't you think it will happen? That will 
don't know yet. Uh, the reason is the Newtonian theory held for more than three centuries before it was overturned. So it may take a lot longer than just 20 years. It may happen, it may not. We have some fundamental difficulties understanding how this works. But let me tell you one area of a very, of, of, of very intense activity that may change things around, but not necessarily for the better. Here's the problem. I told you about quantum theory. It really applies at a, little, at, the, at a small level, right? You know, small things floating around doing stuff. Then we, we spoke about the theory of relativity that really applies for the big things, stars and galaxies and big monstrous things, right? Okay. Then the cosmologist started thinking about what happens when a star collapses. When a star collapses, depending on how it collapses, it could be that it doesn't have enough strength to, put everything, to push everything out, all its matter out in the explosion. It explodes, but the explosion is not powerful enough to push everything out. So what happens to the stuff that explodes? It implodes. So what happens when it implodes? The gravity shoots up, which means that the stuff that was a little bit further away from the implosion gets sucked in. What happens to the gravity? It goes up. And this process continues up to a point where the gravity becomes so powerful that not even light is capable of escaping. You get what? Black hole. Now, when you study the physics of a black hole, it is effectively structured like a, um, like a, um, uh, a cone. A cone, right? And the tip of the cone is called a singularity. It is a very, very tiny point, very tiny, with massive density. Tiny, massive density. Okay, so the physicists decide to study that thing. So what do you need? Tiny, quantum theory. Massive density, theory of relativity. What happens? Big embarrassment. <laughs> we just don't work together. The two theories, the theory of relativity and quantum theory, when you bring them together, just don't work together. So scientists set out to fix this problem. And they came up with string theory. You think quantum and theoretical is weird? Get this, string theory. Okay, string theory. Particles are not little points of things. They're actually strings. They're strings. But they're not the kind of strings you and I know about. There are strings in a universe that has 11 dimensions. 11. 11. Yeah. 11 dimensions. Right? Last count. 11. Okay? So the universe we live in has 11 dimensions. Now, here's the deal. Seven out of those 11 are curled down beyond Planck's constant. Remember the 10 to minus 43? Well, okay, 10 to the minus, three, minus 43 centimeter. Okay? So, therefore, they are unmeasurable. We do not have physical microscopes to actually see something beyond that point. But they're there. So, we, I'm right now walking through 11th dimension. I'm sure you're going to go home and feel a lot better about yourself. <laughs> walking through 11th dimension right now as I'm just cutting through. Seven of them are curled down. 
Okay, so that's one theory. There are others. So somebody decided to now unify all the string theories together, and they called it what? M theory. That's the latest and greatest. Why M? Mysterious. Because <laughs> they really don't know. How they're proceeding. They're basically, what, what are those theories all about? Why are they coming with 11 dimension? Because all they're trying to do is line up all the equations of quantum theory, all the equations of theory of relativity, and make equations big enough. And when I mean big enough, you know these 8.5 by 11 sheet of uh, printer, pr uh, reams of printing paper that you get out of a mainframe? Right? When you go to those classes, you take a, you know, about a pound of those things. All right? And you start writing your equation. And one equation will run you 10 pages. Okay? That's one. There's a bunch of them. What they're scrabbling with is come up with something that can unify both. So to your question, will, will, will it be overturned? Possibly. But would it make more sense? Only time will, will tell. These are very difficult issues that we're dealing with. They're at the really frontier of our conceptual understanding. But I would say this to you that eventually it will have to simplify because reality is beautiful. There's beauty and elegance in these equations that run the universe on a physical level, and we have to converge it. That's why I still don't think they got it right, because why 11? Well, what's up with 11? Yeah, they get the equations to work, but so what? Equations can be wrong. Other questions? Yes. 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 That's another really interesting misuse of science. There are some believers, scientists, scientists who are believers, who this whole thing's going to come back down to the problematic issue of free will and predestination. All right? It's going to all come back down to this. In a couple of lectures from now, you're going to look at me puzzled and say, but do we have free will? I'm going to say, yes. But is there such a thing as predestination? Yes. Free will, predestination. How do you put them together? All right? Okay. So, some... Believing scientists try to justify the existence of free will using the Copenhagen School of Thought. That since things are non-deterministic, you cannot predict the future, therefore there's such a thing as free will. What is the problem with this approach? What's the fundamental problem with this approach? There are actually two. One accidental, one fundamental. The accidental problem is that once more, you're building theology on science. Instead of building science on theology. Theology is the surest of the two. Our theological truths, which were stated 2,000 years ago, guess what? They still hold today. In the book of Didache, which was used to teach the, those who were, teach, were going to teach, teach the faith, the book of Didache was written in 67 AD. 67 AD. In it, it says, abortion is a crime. The Catholic Church position has never changed over a period of 2,000 years on that subject. So theology is the surest of the two. You never build theology on science because tomorrow the Copenhagen approach may be completely overthrown and we will find out that materially the whole universe is deterministic. That's the accidental problem. The more fundamental problem is what? What is free will? It is a property of what? Is it the property of the universe? No. It is the property of the soul, of the supernatural soul. It's a supernatural property. By definition, I would say this. If gravity bends light, free will bends the universe. You think I'm making that up? You might be puzzled. Okay, let me give you an example of free will bending the universe. Lazarus, come forth. That's 
Jesus, God and man, raising Lazarus from the dead through his humanity. You think I'm making that up? St. Peter in Acts. St. Peter in Acts, we are told that they brought the sick and those who were possessed and put them on the path where he would be walking by. And the mere shadow, the mere shadow of St. Peter touching them, healed them. Not that making that, that's in Scripture. Isn't that bending reality? Faith bends reality. Faith makes reality. That's the issue with it. Hold on. Oh, good question. I said the laws of physics are absolute, and scientists will try to create matter and antimatter. Are they going against the conservation of mass? No. Because effectively, when you create matter and antimatter, you're really not creating them as in creating them ex nihilo, out of nothing. You're transforming them out of energy. So when they explode, they don't just explode into nothing. They go back into energy. So really, it's an application of EMC squared. That's what you're dealing with. All right? There's no such thing as creation out of nothing in this universe. Uh, Fatty, yes? Oh, oh, collider. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes. So the colliders that are being created, and the reason why they need them bigger and bigger is because currently nothing is, nothing is moving at the speed in the material world at the speed it used to move at the beginning of the universe, right? When things were really, really hot. So what they do is they use those colliders to really speed these particles to, uh, to up to, meaning they heat them up, they speed them up to a speed or heat that would simulate what happened close to the beginning of the Big Bang. And when they collide them, right, they're trying to see what particles come out of them. And in order to figure out what happened back then, how did matter come about from the initial soup of energy. That's what they're doing by creating these colliders. Essentially, it's a pure physical um, law that tells you that you have to have something big enough to be able to get it to this kind of... Well, yeah, it does, absolutely. Yeah, 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 it does. But I mean, what they're really trying to do is not essentially trying to figure out if quantum theory is right or wrong. They're trying to understand properties of particles. This is what they're really after. Yes? No, no, no. Bell refutes Einstein's locality principle, not the theory of relativity, right? That Einstein notion was that you have to have things in close to each other for a system to work appropriately. If they were too far apart, then you could not have this uh, situation where um, he basically created a, a system that it, where particles were far apart, far away from each other, and he basically said that if you perturb, if you measure, perturb or measure is the same thing, the speed of a particle, then you've perturbed the position of the other one because you've perturbed the position of the whole system. And he asked, how could you do that when the distance is even so great that the light cannot move that fast? And Bell showed that actually it's not true. Yes. And that's, that's exactly the issue you're dealing with. You need to remind them when they say that is that they're relying, they're relying on the Copenhagen School of uh, Quantum Theory, which, and effectively they're relying on the mathematical model behind it, and it's just a model. There is Bohm's theory, which says everything is deterministic, and it yields equally good results. Therefore, that argument cannot be, um, 
cannot be upheld. The second thing you tell them is that just as uh, they will never determine, they will never uh, tell you that, um, uh, that a girl loves them non-deterministically, they will never make such an argument, they, therefore, and, and love cannot be proved, therefore, they cannot make the same argument about God. Right? But they will still argue because at the end of the day, what they're dealing with are issues of morality. Okay, that's a wonderful question you asked. So let me just deal first with the initial thing. Earth is 4.7 billion years old. The universe is 13.7 billion years old. Before the universe, there was no time. Okay? There is no time outside of the universe. Time begins with the universe, and that's also biblically established. God is outside of time, and God doesn't do something. You see, doing something entails there's a distance between thought and doing. Right? So I think about making a cake, and guess what? The cake is not there. Because I'm not God. I gotta have to go do the cake. Right? God is not like that. Thinking is doing. That's why actually in French we do not speak of the word of God, we speak of the verb of God. Jesus Christ is not the word of God, he is the verb. It's, it, it focuses on the fact that it is reality incarnate. So there's no such thing as God thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to create myself a universe. Let me think how I'm going to do that. All right? I'm going to start with a Mac, and I'm going to design the... Th- no, it doesn't work that way. That's why God said, and there is, John, Gospel of John, right? Or the, the, the you know, God said, let there be light, there was light. That's it. Saying is doing. So that doesn't apply. Now, let's go back to your question. If there are other planets and other places in the universe, which we have a whole oodles of planets out there. There's oodles of galaxies too. And let's assume there are other civilizations out there who are alive right now. And you note today in every, in every science fiction movie out there, the aliens are better than us. Either they're really, really, really worse than we are. Right? Like, uh, what was the terrible movie? Um, hold on. Uh, no, no, not E.T. Uh, Predator meets something. I remember what it was. What? Yeah, alien versus predator. Right? These two races are way superior to us, and they come here and just use Earth as a playground. And we're bait. Okay? That's one way of looking at things. Or they're benevolent, but of course, wiser and smarter and better and more beautiful. Not always. Uh, But better anyhow, right? Well, let's think about that for a second. Let's say there is another race out there. And let's say they're also tempted by Satan, and let's say they fall. How would God save them? Anyone cares to wager an answer to this one? Yeah, but but specifically them. How will will the redemption happen? It's true what you said is by the means in which this whole universe is redeemed. But in that particular case, how would salvation take place? Send them a priest from the Catholic Church. Well, that's debatable. It's an interesting concept, but we'll come back to it. Christ dying, right? That's the first thing that comes to mind, that Christ will go and save them. That's another really interesting one. Dying once, save all of them. We'll come back to it. But there is one option, which is, you know, the Son of, the, the, the son of God goes there and becomes one of them and then save them. Right? That's called the, the, democratic, um, um, the democratic option. After all, why should he do this for us and not do it for them? Right? Why would that, why would that option not work? What would prevent that option from ever working? He only has one mother. It's Our Lady. God can't have more than one mother. What do we call Our Lady, by the way? One of her titles? Queen of the... 
We don't pay attention to this, but think about what it means. Are there aliens out there? Little green guys running around, or big, tall, red guys running around, or any kind of guys running around? Guess who, who the queen is? Now, can we send them a Catholic priest? We're not sure. No, no, we're not sure that salvation extends beyond the human race. We're not sure that the office of the church extends beyond the human race. Now, you think this is a laughing matter? There are actually two theologians who have been appointed in the Vatican about ten years ago to study these issues. The Catholic Church is at the center of the universe. Why would God make all of this for us? That is the central question. As Father Kurapi says, I am a little speck in the universe, but God loves the little speck. And the fundamental problem we have is, how can we go? We can go and ask God. I ask Him every day. Why do you love me? If it was me, I would not love me the way you love me. I mean, I know that for a fact. Why, why do you love me? God's love in many occasions is really burdensome. Because His love constantly attracts you to do what you don't want to do. Pull you away from your evil tendencies. Because He loves you. And you go, why do you love me? Can I understand God? I can't. It is beyond my ability to fully understand what it means for God to love me. That I cannot understand. But the one thing I can do is to constantly grow in the love of God. My understanding of God will reach a limit. But my love of God will not. Because we're made for love. Why? Beats me. But I'm sure happy he does. And I am blown away every day by the fact that he created me as a human, not as an ant or a donkey. I fit more in the category of donkeys personally. But he created me as a human being. And I'm more blown away by the fact that I'm Catholic. I know a lot of people who are a lot better than I am and who are not. Why? At the end of the day, when one penetrates into the mystery of our faith, one realizes that it isn't a matter of fighting the extraordinary out of the ordinary. That's what the world out there is trying to do. It's actually a matter of finding how extraordinary the most ordinary stuff is. How the little bit of dirt if we were to pay attention to it, would blow our mind away. That is the incomprehensible love of God spoken softly in our hearts day in, day out, every day, everywhere we go. If only we could listen. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.